And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. Welcome to the Sandy Creek Stirrings Podcast. I am your host, Joshua Jimenez, and thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited about what we have in content coming up this year, excited about some different topics we're going to be discussing together, and I hope you're looking forward to another great year of just fun-filled content and enjoying some things here at the Sandy Creek Stirrings Podcast. Let me encourage you to do a couple things this morning. And then number one, if you would like, you can always send in a question. If you have a question about the Bible, about doctrine, about um, something that you're trying to defend, then you can always send in that question. Now, I'll be the first to say I don't know everything. I, um, I'm still learning a lot, but you can send in that question. You can go to sandycreekstirrings.com to our website, click the contact button and send in a question. And uh, we like to answer those questions on Fridays. And so if you as a listener have a question, you can send those in on the website. Don't forget also that you can leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Facebook and just to encourage the, uh, the podcast to be able to grow and just to get more uh, listeners. And so excited about the growth that we've already seen. And um, let me give you an update just on that as far as what we're seeing here and listeners in the audience here at Sandy Creek Stirrings. Right now, I'm excited to tell you that we have listeners in 12 different countries across the world, from Croatia to Australia to the Philippines, Mexico, Singapore, uh, United Kingdom, France, Germany, Ireland, Japan, Canada, and the U.S. And so got a lot, lot of listeners within that. We've got different listeners from actually different places within those areas. Um, we've got listeners from many different states, um, Arizona, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Wisconsin, Oregon, South Carolina, Colorado, Tennessee. Mississippi, Nevada, Washington, D.C., North Carolina, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Missouri, Georgia, New York, Indiana, Illinois, California, Ohio, Michigan, Maryland, Virginia, Texas, Oklahoma, Washington State, and Florida. And um, Floridians, though, have taken the cake as having the most listeners there in Florida. So, amen, there's that. And, of course, we're based in Florida, so that helps a little bit for the Floridians. And so thank you for being a listener here at Sandy Creek Stirrings, and we've seen a lot of growth. Looking forward to another year of growth here on the podcast and have some exciting things that I'm looking forward to, as I mentioned, as far as content and just some great things. Today, as far as our episode goes, you saw the title. And, you know, that's one thing I kind of dislike about having a title on the episodes. I know you as a listener like it. You get to, you know, you're able to pick and choose if you actually want to listen to the episode, and that's great. I appreciate that. You know, I'm a listener of some podcasts as well, so I understand that the need for the title. But at points, you know, it'd be nice just to be able to surprise you, and you wouldn't know exactly what we're going to talk about. But you saw the 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 title of the episode. Maybe you did. Hopefully you did. And uh, today we're going to talk about abortion. And um, we're going to look at how to defend abortion as far as um, which side we're on and how do we defend that side biblically, factually, and logically. As we set up, of course, Tuesday being an apologetics episode day, 
when we began to talk about apologetics, our very first uh, apologetic episode was just an intro into apologetics, how to defend your faith, how to defend topics, and how to defend things so that you have an answer for every man that asketh you of a reason um, of the hope that is in you. Proverbs chapter 15 says that a wise man studieth the answer. And so you need to know how to answer some of these topics, and abortion is one of those topics. And you need to be able to answer it on those three fronts. You need to be able to answer it biblically. You need to be able to answer it factually with facts, okay? You want it to be truthful, and you need to answer it logically and just bringing it all into the English language, and unless you're of a different language, but bringing it all into where it makes sense, to where people can comprehend it. And that's my that's my problem with so many quote-unquote apologists is sometimes they just shoot over normal people's head. Um, you can't understand what they're talking about. They use all these big words, and so I want to bring it down to a level of where I'm talking to somebody normal. And so as far as abortion, let's dive right in and talk about that today. Now, when you say the word abortion— and it's in a, a debate tone, it's in an argument tone, it's, a, it's, it's really something that when you say the word, a dividing line appears. Each group takes sides, and really the arguments just can become vicious. Sadly, like many debates, many hot topics, the argument of, of pro-choice versus pro-life and blah, 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 it can really, in the end, just kind of boil down to this shouting match of emotions between the two parties. And sometimes we can miss out on what is the actual truth when we look at the idea of abortion. Not even the idea, but the reality of abortion. What does the Bible say about, about abortion? How can a Christian best articulate their side biblically, factually, and logically? And so the arguments today, I'm just going to be frank, they're going to be simple. They're going to be easy to understand and here's the, here's the deal. I'm going to give you a few different people groups that they will be touched by the type of arguments that we're going to give you here today. Number one, you've got Christians or people who are sitting on the fence. Sadly, listen to me, sadly, there are Christians and who are becoming content with abortion and a society of abortion. And um, so there's some people, though, who are sitting on the fence. There's Christians who are sitting on the fence. They're unsure which side to take. And uh, they have a teachable spirit, though. They will be affected by this episode and the type of arguments that we're going to give today. The second group of people are going to be teenagers who want to know the reality of abortion. Um, teenagers are very easily influenced, and so we want to give them these arguments so they can go in with a factual and logical and biblical outlook in the area of abortion. And then number three, uh, a group that will be impacted by today is, is young ladies who are considering the possibility of an abortion. All right, and so here's what I want to say, and I want to be careful in how I say it and hope that you get what I'm saying. The men and women who are set in their ways, they go to the marches, they support Planned Parenthood, um, they will probably not change with any arguments, no matter how deep, no matter how factual, no matter how logical. Now, it's not to say that they can never change. God can change through divine intervention, but typically the people who are set in their ways, you can give the greatest arguments imaginable, they will not change. And so here's what I want you to realize as a listener. If you're talking to somebody about abortion, you're talking to whoever, a friend, a coworker, a family member, something you have to realize is when you're in, quote-unquote, a debate, or you're in an argument with somebody, sometimes... That's all it ends up being is just an argument. At some point, you need to realize when to move on, when to spend the value of your time elsewhere. 
And so you have to go into, when you're talking to somebody, there are people who want to know the truth. And so there will be people who ask questions about abortion to try and find out the truth. But then there's people who ask questions about abortion just to ask questions. All they want is an argument. All they want is a debate. Those people, at some point, my friend, you have to realize when to just walk away. They're not going to change, and you need to spend your time and the value of it in a different direction. And I hope that makes sense. But at some point, you have to realize you can argue uh, just your brains out. And um, not literally. That'd be kind of gross. But um, you have to understand when to walk away. And so that's why I opened up with there's three different types of people groups that will really be affected by this, and they'll be the most effective towards those people groups. And so let's talk about abortion. Let's break it down on those three areas, biblically, factually, and logically. So when we come into abortion, what's the biblical outlook of abortion? Sadly, as I said, Christians are starting to become content in this abortion society. Now, I want to I want to go back in case maybe some don't know what abortion is. Let's go back. Abortion is the I even hate to say it. It's the legalized um taking of the life of an infant. Um, in this debate, some people might say it's not an infant, it's not a baby, um, it's a fetus, it's a, it's a massive tissue. But basically what you're doing is, is that mother who has, a, has conceived in her womb, they are taking that life away so that there is no child, there is no baby. And if that's basically what, when I can just sum it all down, that's the basics of abortion. And so, Here's what's happening, though, as far as a biblical outlook. Instead of letting the Bible dictate the beliefs, some Christians are even starting to come out and say that abortion is okay. But what does the Bible actually have to say? What does the Bible have to say about abortion? And so I want to give you a few facts, and let's set this up biblically. And that's the most important thing. Um, Sandy Creek Stirrings is pointed to Christians. Sandy Creek Stirrings is, is pointed to you growing and learning to defend your faith and to defend your doctrine. So we have to set our, our foundation biblically and then build the factual and the logic on top of that. But it's very important you understand the Bible sign first because that sets really the base for our argument. So let's give a few facts about abortion that I want to start with. Number one, God is the life giver. God is the life giver. Of all things that God created, there was only one that God formed. F-O-R-M-E-D, formed, and that was man. The rest of everything, the, the world, other life forms like animals and things, they were simply spoken into existence. God said the word, and boom, they were there. But you'll find through the creation account, man held a special place in the heart of God. It was God who, who literally took man and formed him with his hands, and it was man whom, whom God breathed life into. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Life, my friend, is not produced by the Big Bang or by the evolutionary theory. And we're going to have a whole episode on evolution at some point. But you won't find life being produced by those things. Life is produced with a biblical outlook. Life is produced by a God who breathed life into man and made him into a living soul. There's no other animal, no species, or anything else that can say the same as as man. And when I refer to man today, I'm referring to the human race. No, there's, the rhinoceros cannot say that God formed me and God breathed into me a soul. The hippopotamus, 
Um, you know, hippopotamus, all you can think of is I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. And uh, hippopotamus, it, it can't say the same thing. Listen to me, friend. Apes, okay, who these crazy people are saying we are descended from, um, ridiculous. As I said, we'll have a whole episode on evolution. They cannot even say the same, that God formed them and breathed into them and, and created them a living soul. So God gave life, and he gave it to man. And so we need to understand that because abortion is around this thing of, truly, when we boil it down, it's about taking of life. About taking of life, okay? Now, what we must understand is God is the life giver. But number two, God begins to form the life of a person, but when? Because that's kind of a central theme of the debate is when does life actually begin? When does it, on the abortion side, on the pro-choice side, you've got this thing of when does it stop becoming a fetus and become a baby? When does it stop becoming just this, this, just this tissue of, uh, just this mass of growing tissue? And when does it actually become a human, a, a living, a baby? When does it become that thing? And so, biblically, when does life begin? Well, God begins. Number two, God begins to form the life of a person within the womb. Did you hear that? God begins to form the life of a person within the womb. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 say this, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. So, let's break down that passage. I know there's a lot there. I want to give you just a few basic things from that passage in this idea of God begins to form life within the womb. Here's a few facts letter A from that, God creates babies within the womb according to his plan and his design. That's what God does. God does that. And you'll find next that that word, it says, thou hast covered me. Covered me is a reference to God intending the womb to be a safe place for this, this new life, this new human being that's going to be born. God created this womb to be a safe place for this new life to be carried until birth. That's what God, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Next, God can see, you'll see in that phrase, thine eyes did see my substance. God can see what the baby is intended to be when he or she grows up. God has a plan for their life. God has something predetermined that he wants them to do. God has already called them to that purpose. You'll find that in Jeremiah, and we'll, we'll get that verse in a little bit, and I'll bring it back. So just kind of put that in the back of your mind for a second and remember it when we come to and talk about Jeremiah. But God has a plan for their life. Thine eyes did see my substance. God saw them and knew what he wanted them to be, and God formed them according to his design, placing them in the womb, an area of safety until birth. Now, next, the baby, you'll find from this, is fearfully and wonderfully made. If we can kind of boil that down, it means that there is not another baby like that one. Each one is formed in, in some form, in some fashion, different by a, by a God who has an intended purpose for his or her life. Even twins have a difference between the two of them. There's differences there. And so God begins, clearly from Scripture, he begins to form life within the womb. As soon as that baby is conceived, God begins to form the life within the womb. You'll find number three in facts about abortion biblically, God gives life 
But within Scripture, he also determined the taking of life. God gives life, but within Scripture, he also determined the taking of life. He says in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. So God gives life, but on the flip side, he determines how and when a life should be taken away. And there's a few ways that God does that. Number one, he does it through divine intervention. Sometimes God literally takes people out and you say, I don't like that. That's a terrible fact. But if you go to Isaiah, God says sometimes he takes out the children of God for mercy's sake. There's something coming in down the road that's terrible. And God says, I'm just going to go ahead and bring you home to a better place for mercy's sake. A second way that God determines how, how people die, how life is taken away, is through just simply the cycle of life. People get old, they die of old age. All right? Now, uh, number three, you have war um, and protection. You'll find that God dictated that there are some things to fight for. The, the Bible does say, thou shalt not kill, but at the same time, God says there are some things that you defend, that you protect through war and through fighting and things of that sort, and sometimes there will be death involved in that, but that's predetermined by God that there's some things that you should stand up for. And then number four, you'll find God allows the taking of life through capital punishment and the standards that he has set up. All right, now all of those things, divine intervention, the cycle of life, war slash protection, capital punishment, all these things were set as standards by God to allow him to still dictate the taking of life that he gave in the beginning. Here's the problem. When we consider ourselves the best judge of when life should be taken away, then it comes down to the, subjecti the subjectivity of each person. You say, what do you mean? Well, Hitler thought it was good to kill Jews. Is that right? No. But here's the thing. If, if Adolf Hitler would have gone back to what God said, then he knew he shouldn't be able to take life outside of the parameters of what God gave. Therefore, it's not up to his subjectivity of who to take life from. Stalin thought it was good to kill old people. Tribes in, in Africa thinks it, think that it's okay to kill off one of the twins. If there's twins born, you should kill off one of them. Some historical figures thought it was okay to kill off those with mental handicaps. Some think it's okay to kill babies who have not been born yet. And there will be some people who say, well, it's not right to kill Jews. It's not right to kill old people. Um, it's not right to kill people with mental handicaps. But, oh, but it's okay to, to kill, you know, um, babies within the womb. Well, the problem is they're, they're leaving it up to what they think is right rather than having a set standard to follow. And so when we consider ourselves the taker of life, which, by the way, is a position to be held by God, then we begin to play God and do things that are truly out of bounds for us. And so God gives life. He should determine the taking of life through his word. You will find God does not at any point tell a mother to take the life of her child that she is carrying within her womb. That is out of bounds for God. That is out of bounds, not for God necessarily, but for God stating that to humans. It's out of bounds for people. They should not do that. It's not right because God didn't dictate that that's when a life should be taken because the womb is a place of safety. Number four, God says that unborn babies are people with a divinely appointed purpose. Remember that verse I said we'd mention a little bit later on, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. 
And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God knew Jeremiah before he was even born. And God establishes that before Jeremiah even came out of the womb, God knew him, God had a plan for him, and God called him for a specific purpose. I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations before he was even born. Now, there's the, as I said, there's that question out there in the abortion debate of when life truly begins. God says, you'll see here, God says it begins at conception within the womb when he begins to form this life. If Jeremiah had been aborted, who would have done the job that God determined for him to do as a prophet? Now, some have said, and I don't know that it's truly a valid point, but it's an interesting talking point. Some have asked, where's the person who has the cure for cancer? Where's the George Washingtons of our day? Maybe the reality is God had that person set up. He formed them in the womb, and they were aborted. Maybe that's the reality. Maybe that's the truth of the situation. So God says that unborn babies are people with a divinely appointed purpose. Number five, God protected the unborn babies. Therefore, all right, and we're about to give why and how God protected the unborn babies, but I want to make that statement and then use some logic there. God protected the unborn babies. If he's going to protect them, therefore he wouldn't want you to hurt them. Exodus chapter 21, 21, verses 22 and 23 say, If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life. God divinely interceded within law to protect the unborn children. Now, this verse is saying, if I can break that verse down, this verse is saying that if a woman is injured and she is caused to go into premature labor, God has a system of punishment for that. Now, if this lady is injured and and premature labor happens, you'll find in the first step of this law, if premature labor happens and the baby and the mother are okay, the person who injured the mother would be forced to pay according to the judgment of the husband and the judges. He wouldn't have to give his life. Things are, it's not the way it was intended to be. Things are okay. No mischief has followed. Then he would just have to pay a, a, a fine or whatever it would be according to the judgment of the husband and the judges. But if premature labor happened and the baby was killed in the process, this is what this verse is saying, then the person who injured the mother or the child would have their life taken from them. Sounds like God was pretty serious about protecting the unborn children. Now, as a side note, we'll address this later on. By the way, our government has a law that's very similar that protects unborn children. Um, that if you hurt a pregnant lady and the child dies, they charge you on, on charges of murder. They try you on charges of murder. Uh, by the way, that's the government. <laughs> that's a roundabout way of the government establishing that Babies in the womb are people, they have life, they have rights within the womb. That's, that's really what that law is saying underneath it. So if God meant for the womb to be protection, and he judged those who injured an unborn child, then he never intended them to be torn to shreds by doctors and machines within the womb. The Bible is perfectly clear. To take the life of an unborn child is murder according to the standards of God. 
God is, here's the deal, God is very much against those who would hurt children. And, and God will avenge the pain of children. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 2 say, Then he said unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through who they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Sounds like God's pretty serious. He says it'd be better for a guy to put a millstone around his neck, get cast into the sea, basically be drowned, than to hurt one of these children, to hurt one of these little ones, to offend one of these little ones. That's what God says. He's very serious. So from Scripture, it's clear where God stands on the most common debates of abortion, okay? God says in the area of when does life start, God says life begins at conception within the womb. And we can back that up with a, uh, with a pure biblical outlook. Number two, God dictates that the reason and the purposes for both the giving and the taking of life, and it's determined by Him, it should be determined by Him. And then number three, God is against those. Listen to me, God is against those who would hurt unborn children and within the law would label those people as murderers. That's why he said, life for life if a life was taken of an unborn child. Now, I know that's not a super deep dive into the area of abortion biblically, but it's the basic thing. If you don't, <laughs> if you're a Christian and you read your Bible and you think abortion is okay, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but God is very clear where he would stand in the area of abortion. Now, now that we've established a foundation biblically, I want to go into this and look at it factually, just from a fact standpoint. And I want to give you a few things. Number one, abortion is the biggest killer in history, period. Abortion is the biggest killer in history, period. End of story. Nothing else even compares. World, world man, I'm having a hard, hard time pronouncing that. World War One. What a difficult word. Had approximately 23 million casualties. The Holocaust, okay, had an estimated 6 million Jews exterminated. The peak of them all, though, was World War II, which says that there was an estimated 84 million deaths. Now, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. 84 million, that's a lot. Absolutely incredible. I mean, just an incredible number. But all of those pale in contrast to the deaths by abortion. Since, since the passing of Roe v. Wade in 1973, which was, of course, a, a court decision uh, legalizing abortion, there have been over 61 million legalized abortions. That's according to multiple sources, but predominantly the research being done by a secular research organization known as and I hope I pronounce this right, Guttmacher, I think is how you pronounce it, G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R, Guttmacher, it's a research council, it's a secular place, all right, it's not necessarily um, something, some, uh, some research place that I would agree with their values and things, but uh, they do some research on abortion. 61 million is what I said since 1973. Now, you said, well, I thought you, I thought you said that, you know, it pales in comparison to World War II, but that's... You know, that's 23 million less than World War II. But when you actually look at the statistics of abortion, it's going to make World War II, and I say this not, not irreverently to the dead and those who fought for our freedoms, but it's going to make the death of World War II look like child's play. 
And the reason why is because the 61 million is the number within the United States since 1973. According to the World Health Organization, there is an estimated 40 to 50 million abortions performed worldwide every single year. Did you hear that? 40 to 50 million abortions performed worldwide every single year. That means in two years we topped World War II's deaths. In two years. That means in four years we doubled the deaths of World War II. That means in just 10 years there are six times more deaths by abortion than by the results of a literal world war. Like literally war all over the world. Abortion beats those numbers out in 10 years by six times. In fact, the World World Health Organization, sorry about that, goes on to say that 25% of all pregnancies, 25%, one out of four, 25% of all pregnancies between 2010 and 2014 ended in abortion. You boil it all down, since 1980, there have been an estimated over 1.5 billion deaths by abortion. 1.5 billion deaths by abortion, that's the truth of abortion. I stand by the statement I made at the beginning, abortion is the biggest killer in history, period, end of story. Nothing else even compares. Number two, as far as the facts go, life begins at conception, even based just on science. All right, if we push the Bible aside for a second, okay, and I, and I say that because there's some people who won't believe the Bible, but they might believe facts. Life begins at conception, even scientifically. At the moment of conception, DNA is formed within the baby. You do basic research, you'll find DNA is formed within the baby. DNA is unique, it's specific to that baby. It cannot, it, it cannot be and will not be repeated within Society, a reminder of the fact that each baby, by the way, according to God, is fearfully and wonderfully made. It's, it's amazing how science always catches up to what God said in the very beginning. If DNA is formed immediately at conception, it tells you that there's life at conception. Number three, abortion leaves two people scarred, the baby and the mother. That's a fact. Abortion leaves two people scarred, the baby and the mother. The baby is obviously scarred because the baby is killed. Its life is taken away. It's as simple as that. If life begins at conception, both scientifically and biblically, then life is removed by a doctor at the time of the abortion. Life being taken away is death. In this case, it's what you might refer to as legalized murder. But many don't realize the emotional and physical scars that a mother will endure. Physically, we, be, we, just, we cannot begin to number the amount of women who have been physically scarred for life because of a problem in the abortion with some women never being able to conceive a child again. Not only are they scarred physically, but they'll be scarred emotionally because mothers who have an abortion will still go through the emotional time of postpartum. Not just not, that's not just me saying that. You look at government websites, there are articles on how, how to go through postpartum after an abortion because their baby's gone. They still go through that. And it's a very emotional time, a very, um, trying to be nice to pregnant ladies, a very hormonal time. It's a very difficult time for ladies. But here's the deal. One of the comforts for a lady going through postpartum is she has that child. Aborted, uh, mothers who have an abortion 
They don't have that. There's no child. Even Planned Parenthood, by the way, has an article on dealing with postpartum depression. You can read, you can hear with minimal research the stories of women who have dealt with years and years and years of regret over their abortion. You can let the women in the marches say what they want. The vast majority of ladies who have gone through an abortion are emotionally scarred for life. So the reality is their abortion leaves two people scarred, the baby and the mother. Number four, abortions are based predominantly. Factually, factually, listen to this. This is facts. Abortions are based predominantly and overwhelmingly on issues of convenience. According to Guttmacher, the most common reasons for abortions are having a baby would dramatically change my life. Having a baby would interfere with my education. Having a baby would interfere with my job, my employment, my career. Having a baby would be bad because I have other children or dependents right now. I cannot afford a baby right now. I'm unmarried. Um, I don't want to be a single mother. I'm having relationship problems. I don't want people to know that I had sex or I got pregnant. Those are all issues of convenience. That's not my opinion. That's not my idea. Those are facts by a research company. Sadly, abortion isn't based off of what's best for the baby. It's based off of what the mother deems is more important. The mother, in the chase of abortion, chooses to sacrifice the life of their child for, the, for their personal wants and their personal desires. That's what it comes down to most of the time. All of those reasons are in direct contrast, by the way, to a few biblical, a few biblical principles. Number one, God gives children as a blessing. They're not a curse. God gives children as a blessing. You'll find that in Deuteronomy 7.13. You'll find Psalm 127.3. Low children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. You may be shocked, okay? You may be shocked to find out you're pregnant, and it may seem like an inconvenience. But in time, you'll find it to be a blessing. You can read online the stories of moms who considered an abortion but gave birth and are so happy that they chose to give their child the right to life. There's thousands of those stories. Another biblical principle on that issue is um, parents should sacrifice for their children, not the other way around. The baby shouldn't be a sacrifice because of your wants and desires. You should sacrifice your wants and your desires for the life of the child that you now have within your womb. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 says, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And then you'll find, last, God is adamantly against the sacrifice of children. And that's what they are doing when they have an abortion. They are sacrificing their children for their personal wants and their personal desires. You'll find God is against personal, or against the sacrifice of children. In Psalm 106, 38, You'll find it in Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus 20, verses 2 through 5, Jeremiah 19.5, Jeremiah 32.35, to name a few. And so that's the facts behind it. Not super deep, but some basic facts. Now, logically, how do we bring this all together? Well, here's what I'm going to give you. Logically, the reality of abortion is that to have an abortion is to take a life that God formed, intended, and planned for a specific purpose. People can try and dehumanize unborn babies by calling them fetuses or tissue masses, but the reality is that a baby within the womb 
has life. DNA says this, God says this, even our laws, the ones about harming unborn children, say this. Truly, our government is willing to admit that it's not a fetus, it's a baby, because they punish someone who harms an unborn baby on the charges of murder. That's the reality of abortion. The problem is that women have an abortion based on issues of convenience when it would be convenient and beneficial for your child if you had followed the biblical plan for sex, don't have sex until you're married. You know, we could stop the overwhelming majority of abortions in America if we stopped sexual sin and waited until marriage to have sex like God intended. The problem with our society is that we base our wants and our desires above everyone else's, and that includes even the life of our unborn child. So you can shout, you can march, you can hold up signs all you want, scientifically, factually, biblically, and logically, you are supporting the murder of unborn children and the emotional scarring of mothers across the world. That's the truth. That's the logic behind abortion. So I want to give one other point real quick. What about women who have had an abortion? Maybe you know a lady who has had an abortion. Maybe you're a lady listening today, and you've had an abortion. I know that this episode would have been probably difficult for you to listen to, difficult to swallow, if you're a lady who had an abortion. You may even ask yourself, can God love someone like me? I want to give you a couple things. God's promises of salvation, the ones that say, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, the ones where he says, come now, let us reason together. The one where God, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's promise of salvation, even if you've had an abortion, still applies to you. Yes, God can, and yes, God wants to save you. God wants you to go to heaven. Number two, God's promise of forgiveness 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's promise of forgiveness still apply to you. God can and God will forgive you if you only ask. Number three, God's promises of love and His intentions for your life still apply to you. God, if you are saved, if you have asked for forgiveness, God's promise of I will always be with you, I will never forsake you, I am a very present help in a time of trouble, I am your refuge, I am your shield, and I am your buckler, all those promises still apply to you. God still has an intention for your life. God still has something you want to do. You say, what do I do now? I've had an abortion. I've messed up. You continue your life from here, serving God, being a blessing to others. Here's what you cannot do. You can't go back and change the past. So what you can't do is you can't live in the past. I say something that I haven't been there, okay? And I imagine to be incredibly difficult. But according to the Word of God, at some point, you'll have to do your best to hand over that burden of maybe guilt, maybe shame. Hand, hand that burden over to God and let Him carry it and move forward. You can't stay in the past. God can help you with your emotional struggles that you have faced and the guilt that lingers. And when a preacher preaches on abortion, 
your amen should be the loudest. I would also encourage you to be willing to use your testimony to encourage others to not make the same mistake that you did. Because there's some teenage girls out there who would benefit from hearing your testimony. And maybe they wouldn't do the same thing that you did because you helped them. And so you have to keep moving forward and allow God to use you. And as reverently and as respectfully as I can say this, there is a baby up in heaven that, yes, went through an abortion, but God protects those unborn children, and it's up in heaven. He or she is up in heaven. It's a much better place than you and I are in, amen? I believe who, if they can look down, I believe they would look at you and they would cheer you on if you would only live for Christ and do what God intends you to do, leading souls to Christ and being a blessing to others. So for moms who have had an abortion, God still wants to save you. God can still forgive you. God still loves you. You just turn to Him. Be an encouragement to others and do what God wants for your life. And in the end, God can use even the mistakes and turn them into something that nobody ever expected. So the truth of abortion, the reality if we sum it all up, biblically, factually, logically, a Christian cannot stand for abortion. A Christian must stand against it. And so, on the issue of abortion, yes, a Christian should be, must be, pro-life. And so that's the the facts behind abortion. If you have any questions, you can always contact me at sandycreekstirrings.com. Go to the contact page and you can send in any questions you may have there and be more than willing to talk with you about the subject a little further. And so I hope you have a great rest of your week and looking forward to our episode on Thursday. And uh, we'll talk to you then and you'll hear me then. And we'll be back on Thursday with another Baptist History episode. So until then, make sure that you keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.